Good morning, everybody. Once again, this is Talking Brands Radio, and here we have Casey Garrett, which is me, and over to my left, we have Stephen Johnson. Hey, everyone. This is Stephen. Hey, so uh, today we are in a new time slot, and we're hoping this is where we're going to be for the next, really, rest of the year. So we'll be here at 9.30 instead of our nice and early 5.30s time slot, which I'm pretty keen on. Not yes. sure how you feel. I am very happy about it, too. You just we, we got people um, thinking we're at 5.30 in the morning, so we're jumping to 9.30. But uh, if anyone followed us, well done. We'll probably be hard to keep your hands on. So. Yeah, good stuff. So now... Uh, to yesterday, we or last week, I would say, we talked a little bit about climate change, and now we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about, really, the situation in California with our water. So do you want to lead us off a little bit with that? Yeah. Um, I don't know if any of you all are familiar with this, but uh, right now, California is going through a, a very, very serious drought. It's the worst one in recorded history, and it's about like 500 years since they've been recording it. So it's pretty bad. I There's... Uh, there's different ways to know that um, things are going to be kind of bleak for the next year. And one of them is the snowpack is very small this year. There wasn't that much snowfall up in the Sierras, which is where we get a good bit of our water. I think a, a third of our water. So, Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So how do we exactly get, because of snow, Yeah. Just for, how, how do we get that as usable water? Let's talk about that. You know, this is something I didn't know anything about until I came to Brent. I never thought about the, the fact that snow is this kind of perfect resource that in the winter when no one's really using water... It, the precipitation lands on the mountains in the form of snow, and it basically just sits there um, for, you know, the, the winter months. And then right when it starts getting hot and people really need to start drinking water or using water for whatever they need, the snow starts to melt and come down the mountain and basically gives water to all the, the cities and people around. And if there's not enough precipitation in the beginning, then basically what happens is California and other um, places around like Oregon will slowly uh, not have enough water right whenever you need it most for your crops, like summer and autumn around then. Yeah, and so what are some of the consequences we're experiencing with a lot of this reduced rainfall and reduced snowfall? Well, now I've heard that there's been a, a huge boom in water drilling. So people are tapping into our, basically our, our groundwater, which is water that's just below the surface that's always sitting there. And as a result, like sometimes the, the San Joaquin Valley, which is the valley where Sacramento is and goes down, the breadbasket of, of America pretty much, if you deplete too much water, the, actual, the, um, the soil actually sinks. And we're seeing a bit of that. But right now there's actually a good industry is to actually have a big drill and pay for a drill and actually drill into the water just to get water for the next couple of years. So that's basically not a good solution, but that's what's happening. Yeah, so there's, I've seen there's definitely some cases of alternative water sources, but another thing that I've started to see, we're seeing some negative impacts to all sorts of different agriculture and ranching communities. Uh, there's some forecasts that the just basic price of food is going to rise as a lot of people who grow crops in California are having less efficient yields, essentially having less food to grow I've because there's not enough rain to support it. I, I believe beef is up to... Um, 350 a pound right now, which is the, the most it's been in 20 years. And we'll just see more things like that, dairy and milk and stuff like that, will go up because a lot of these things are very water-intensive. So. Yeah, very much so. And beef specifically has a, a much greater challenge than just regular crops because not only do they need to just have the cattle support them, just make sure they are just being fed, well taken care of, but that takes a lot of pasture land. And Although a lot of ranchers will buy just other sorts of feed just to have for a backup, a lot of ranchers do rely on just natural growing grass that's, of course, sustained by rainfall. And now that we're having these sustained periods of drought, 
we're seeing a lot more of cases of ranchers even not selling out half or their entire herd because they're not able to feed and support them all. And they're selling them either at losses or far from the ideal amount of money they'd normally like to make. So, yeah, it's not much of a surprise that, as a result, we're seeing higher prices of beef, and it's certainly causing a big risk to their livelihood. Yeah, as water um, gets depleted, you know, the water reserves get depleted, what happens is the first things that get cut is agriculture and any, anything like, like livestock, like you mentioned. And water pretty much goes to people's, like, to sanitation and to drinking, which, if it continues on through this year... It's, we're going to probably see more of that, and farmers are going to get hit first and hardest, and everyone else will still have water for the time being. Yeah, and I, and it's a very interesting and a very tricky challenge. I think something as far as the public opinion goes, we see even today, for those of you who are up and around right now in Santa Barbara, it's, it's kind of gloomy, it's foggy, it's even a little bit of drizzle going on, so not a lot of people are thinking we're in this severe drought, but this is something that, as you said, Stephen, has been going on for several years, so... Yeah. This really is a problem that people um, think would be useful to be paying more attention to. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's been it's in its third year, and there's talk of the fact that this next year is an El Nino year, which is in the northern hemisphere, pretty much presented with more rain and, and whatnot. So that might happen or might not happen next winter. But either way, from here up till next December, we would be in heavy highest drought. Uh, conditions, I would say. Yeah, that's right. And I believe in, uh, a lot of cities and municipalities aren't really waiting for the next El Nino or next uh, significant climate event. So there are several solutions that they're thinking of. And one of the ones that I was reading about that I found the most interesting is that California is actually partnering with Israel to see some of their how they manage water strategies. They're about 80% desert. So they're definitely, Israel is a nation that definitely needs to manage their water resources wisely. Oh, yeah. And two of the major things that they really rely on is desalinization and water recycling. And each of those definitely present their own sets of pros and cons. Uh, yeah, because they're both very energy intensive, right? Like the, the desalinization costs a lot of like fossil fuels to get into the ability to take the salt out of the water. If I'm not correct. That's right. And just for those of you who aren't aware, desalinization is essentially the process in which you can take ocean water and then filter out the salt so then you can have potable or drinkable fresh water. Yeah. And so, as you said, the biggest uh, essential downside for that is it's very energy intensive. Yeah, I think there's like a, a membrane that has to be uh, basically just a little porous or just like uh, some kind of a substance with small holes that you shove the water through it. And as a result, it takes all the salinity out. But in order to get the power to push it through that, that membrane, um, it, it just uh, takes a lot of fossil fuels. Exactly right. And theoretically, it could be powered using alternative or renewable fuels, thus m mitigating that issue. But in practice, that's very rarely uh, done. So you really do see that it does have a high, quote-unquote, carbon footprint. It has a lot of emissions. But in addition, it does also present some amount of pollution byproduct, uh, I was reading that it's some amount of sludge or some just strange, unpleasant byproduct that can happen through this process. So although it's certainly useful and in Israel's case might be essential, it's definitely something here in California. There might be alternative strategies that might be more successful. Yeah. Like one, I think, an easy one that's a quick solve is if people can serve it a bit more. That's always a, a good start to everything. I know personally I've stopped doing my dishes. So, <laughs> so it's uh, that's pretty good. I'm I'm joking. Actually, no college student actually has dishes. They eat over the sink the whole time. <laughs> right, so, right. So. And it, it's interesting you say that because uh, another study up in Sacramento actually saw that it, using behavioral modification studies actually can be successful. And essentially, what they would do is they wouldn't send out their water bill, 
and you would see how much water you're using and all par for the course. However, then afterwards, what they would do is they would put how well your water usage compared to those of houses around you of similar size and similar things like that. So you would see, oh, if I'm using this much water, how much are my neighbors using? And they saw this actually is very successful in motivating people to use less water as they try to, you know, outdo their neighbors. Really, that's a great technique then. It's like kind of keeping up with the Joneses, but um, just you're competing with them on how little water you use. Exactly. Yeah. Instead of buying the new car, you're like, well, I haven't been using as much water, which is equally as you could brag about that just as much, I think. Yeah, very much. So social pressers do have that incredibly powerful force, and we're seeing those use once again. Yeah. Now, actually, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break, and after that, we're going to go ahead and play a recording that we did with a colleague of ours, Jim Bond, and talk about his role in managing different water resources and really all the interesting nuances and challenges that come with that. So go ahead and keep listening to Talking Brins Radio, and we'll be back right after this. with Talking Brands Radio. This is Casey Garrett and Stephen Johnson. And also joining us here this morning is Jim Bond. Hey, Jim. Good morning. How's it going? Uh, great. So uh, let's just start off. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I have been working in watershed management for about 14 years. Um, I worked in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan for a number of years, which is that portion of Michigan above Wisconsin. And then I moved to Montana and worked for the Montana Department of Environmental Quality there for eight before I decided to come back to school and get my master's degree here at Bren. Excellent. And yeah, so you're a first-year student uh, as well as uh, Stephen and I. Yes. So uh, you're currently part of the Sustainable Water Markets Fellowship. Uh, do you mind telling us a little bit about that? And then what's your motivation? You have a background in water, but what made this particularly enticing for you to join? So... 
the fellowship is designed. This is the first year of the fellowship, and it's offered through a uh, uh, a generous donation from the Walton Family Foundation. And is that the Waltons, like Walmart Waltons. That's the Walmart Waltons, yeah. Okay. And the idea really is to uh, foster uh, students who would be getting involved in in water resource management, but looking at the water market side of things, so more the economic side. And um, for me, my background is a lot more in the kind of physical management of watershed and uh, studied geomorphology and and fish protection and that kind of thing. Um, But there's a lot of tools out there available to us to better manage water, I think. And looking at just the physical side, I, I think that's not the whole picture. So what I really liked about the Sustainable Water Markets Fellowship the idea is, no, you can look at more of the economy side and then have that as another tool in the toolbox to try to balance um, your watershed management techniques such that you have efficient allocation of water so that you, you are meeting the needs of the environment and you're also meeting the needs of the agricultural producers and you're also meeting the needs of the folks in urban centers. So that's really – that was my impetus. I really – I saw this program as something that would – give me even a broader exposure and put more tools in the toolbox for me to do my work later on. Sounds great. So you're mentioning a little bit you have this uh, substantial background in the more physical aspect, especially in your previous work. What were some of the greatest challenges you had in implementing some of these uh, management plans that you were drafting? Well, I mean, every watershed is different. Um, So you know, the actual issues that you're dealing with uh, on a watershed-by-watershed basis could be completely different. You could have temperature issues in one basin, and you can have, you know, sediment or nutrients as a result of agriculture in another one. There's, there's all there's all sorts of variables that come into play. But probably one of the most challenging things in any watershed, regardless of where you are, is the buy-in from the public, right? So <clears throat> I, can, I can spend years, and I have <laughs> spent years working in a particular area developing a watershed management plan, right? And within that plan, you are providing recommendations. And this is for, like, the general public you're talking about. Right. So, well, the management plan could be used by anyone, right? So by resource managers and by agricultural producers and by just the general public. You know, these are these plans are supposed to um, help kind of outline the path for, for what folks should be doing um, to help either reduce pollutants or conserve water or whatever it is so that we're – we're meeting the needs of a functioning ecosystem within that watershed. Not just a functioning ecosystem, but a functioning livelihood for the people that live in that watershed, right? Yeah, and that makes sense. So tell us uh, why would there be difficulties with that? Because if you're saying here's some sound science, if you follow this plan, you'll save water, and it's a you know theoretically a good thing for this water management and the city. But I imagine you this it doesn't go that easily in most cases, does it? No, I mean. People have lots of different perspectives, right, right off the bat. So how people value water is sometimes very different. I think everybody understands that water is incredibly valuable and we all need it. But, but you know, somebody that's ranching may not care about fish quite in the same way as somebody that just enjoys fishing, right? So <clears throat> trying to find this balance um, when you are explaining you know, the different factors that are happening within the watershed and and some of the needs that need to be um, achieved within the watershed 
bridging the gap between all these different users and what their values are of water is really hard. And and depending on where you come from, you know, I've dealt with a lot of ranchers who had very strong opinions of kind of what they thought was heavy-handed government influence, right? And they also, some of them thought that um, there were, I was motivated for different reasons than their well-being. They thought, you know, maybe I'm just some kind of tree-hugging, fish-loving environmentalist, and that's what my focus was. So there was one uh, incident you were talking about before about uh, you were in a, almost like a town hall meeting, right? right like, yeah. no, tell us about that one. I found that one really interesting. So when I worked in Montana, well, in both places, but in Montana, we had to do a lot of um, public meetings to kind of set up why we were in a particular watershed and what we were trying to do and just reach out to all the stakeholders. Because like I was saying, you need to have buy-in from all these folks if, you're, if your plan is actually going to get off the ground and if things are going to change. So we try to have as many of these meetings up front and throughout the process as possible. And one of the first meetings in this particular basin that we went to, it it was a small, it was like a really small room. It was in rural, rural Montana, so the, the, the town hall was actually like an old log cabin, right? <laughs> <clears throat> so we go in the cabin, and there's a clutch of, I don't know, 20 or 25 of these local ranchers. And they were riled up. Like, they did not like government really coming in and telling them things. And they had just the day previously, um, the Fish and Wildlife Department had come and, and had a talk about wolves. And wolves are very controversial. So they were still kind of like on high boil from that. And then here's this next agency from Montana coming in, telling them what they can and can't do with their water and how they're going to run their their ag operations, right? So they were very uh, – they had a big chip on their shoulder. And this was just you in the room that was representing them? Um, so it was me and a couple colleagues from the department, um, but we were, we were heavily outnumbered. And uh, the, it was just kind of – it was a contentious atmosphere, right? So I – and this was before we had really done any research. We hadn't really gotten started. We were just outlining, look, this is why we're here, and this is what we're going to try to do. And, and so as much, as much um, involvement as they would be willing to give would be appreciated. And, but more than anything, it was just an information exchange. How did that, the whole thing play out with that? So in the course of this meeting, I had – fielded a number of questions, and some of them were really good, valid questions, and others were kind of a little bit off the wall. But I was trying to trying to address every question as reasonably as I could. And there was this one guy, and he seemed really, like, really sharp, really intelligent. He seemed like he might have been a, more of a, a community leader among those ranchers, right? But he stands up, and he stares at me, and he goes, I do not trust you. <laughs> He's just like, I, I don't believe, I don't believe what you're saying. I don't believe what... What you're what you're telling us here? What's your, what's your real motivation? I'm like, well, I, I'm first of all, I'm explaining everything that I can, right? Like this is all I know so far. My motivation is very clear. This is what I'm trying to do, but I'm not trying to ruin agriculture. I'm not, you know, we're trying to work together here. And he thought like, uh, you've got you've got some plans going on already that you're not letting us in on, and. <clears throat> And I just I had to convince him. I was like, I, I really don't. And he said, he said, what can I do on my property right now? And I said, I could only talk in general terms because I could only apply from what I've learned from other watersheds and say, well, probably these are the issues in this watershed, but we're too early on to know. And, and you were up there um, about, what, two or three weeks while this was going on, trying to win the crowd over a little bit? Well, you, 
so you know you have the meeting, but you you're up there in the watershed and you're and you're coming back over and over and you're starting to find people where you can work on their property to get to you know maybe go in and access the stream and get some data and that that kind of stuff but yeah so this first meeting he was really aggressive and i'd never been called out like that before you know just i don't trust you you're up to no good and even like he said that and i kind of feel it and then at the end of the meeting he still when when it was over he walked out and it was like he was staring at me the whole time just to kind of like give me that i know you're up to something yeah and i think that's not too uncommon in a lot of environmental management issues where just a lot of these stakeholders see environmental interests as outsiders, people coming in, disrupting their way of life. So you touched on it a little bit, but would you mind going into a little more? So how did you go about really building uh, the trust in this community, which seems that's the most essential step to getting any meaningful action done? Absolutely. You're totally right. So like that was just the setup, right? So over time then, I mean, I, I kept coming back and I kept making my making myself known in this area and I was letting them know if I if I had information to share I shared it and when there were conversations that I could you know we could generate I would have those conversations and I was open access I said if you guys ever want me to just come down and like meet you at 7 a.m. at the diner when you guys are getting your coffee I will do that just whatever whatever it takes but you know I'm here to help everybody really so the big win for this story is that, you know, over time, I think gradually the meetings became less contentious. The The vibe in the meetings was a lot more relaxed. And the questions were – there were fewer questions. And I think in part there were fewer questions because they knew what we were doing and they understood it. Even if they didn't always agree with what we were doing, they understood where we were coming from, what we were doing. And then the big win was kind of towards the end of the project – I give my presentation and I, and I present all the data that we collected and, and the results and why we had recommended what we were recommending. And the same rancher that at the beginning said, you know, I don't trust you, you're up to no good. At the end of the meeting, he came up to me, shook my hand, looked me in the eye and said, I appreciate what you're trying to do here. And I just was like, yeah, that's, that's, great. that's as good as it gets. I mean, if we can get that kind of buy-in from a guy like that, then we're doing something right. It seems like it was a matter of trust once – you won their trust over things were able to get done well yeah and it's it's trust but it's also understanding right so they believed they knew what it was we're trying to do and they also they also don't they just don't know everything about you know other people's perspectives on stuff and they want to make sure that their perspective is heard and understood in context with everything else you know and i think it wasn't just letting them know what I was doing. It was also um, letting them know that I acknowledge what their values are and that I also find them important, and that's a part of the process. And I think when they felt comfortable with the fact that I, in fact, was – they were a, a part of the puzzle, you know, in this watershed management scheme, then they were like, okay, good. We're not We're not getting dismissed here. These guys are actually – thinking about us. Yeah, very fascinating. So we're almost out of time here. So let's kind of draw the attention a little bit closer to home here in California. And now, of course, we are facing droughts. Even with the most recent rainfall, there are still signs saying we're far from being in the clear. So if you had to take any insight that you might have developed over time, what do you think are some of the issues that Californians face here? And I guess what I mean by that is, do you feel this water or a drought issue is being properly represented in either communications or are the right people being informed? Or even at the very least, what are some things that 
even the just people listening to our show right now, what can they do to contribute to conserving the water that we have? That's a good question. I think, you know, as far as like how how this is being presented in the media or how how information is being put out there, I think that's tough because you have kind of people get their information from different sources and they tend to, you know, you have the choir going to whoever their preacher is to hear what it is that they want and like to hear. So Mm -hmm. I think if you're in the agricultural valley, you're going to hear messages about water and water use that are very um, specific to ag users. Whereas if you're in the urban centers, you're going to hear messages that are very specific to them. And it's tough. I don't, I, I think it depends on your outlet for how well that is really being described. Like, what's the drought impact, and why do we all need to participate in in trying to do something to um, to conserve more water? And how do we get there? Yeah, certainly, your experience uh, really showed that a one size fits all approach may not be best. Where I mean, you really got in there with those stakeholders, and that's how you really got change about it. it wasn't just some blanket campaign. You really, as an individual, seemed to deliver some major results. So. Yeah, I tried, and it, but you know, the the bigger the scope, the harder that is to to accomplish, I think, sometimes, right? So I could work in a rural community, and I could effectively get out and meet a lot of people. But, um, you know, the bigger it is, the harder it is to get your message to to really convey that message to the right people and in the right way. And the other thing is, you know, who's, who's providing the information? So, like, a reporter could be very well-meaning, but if they don't really understand what it is they're reporting on, that might be reflected in in how they report that information and then you can have some problems as a result of that but as as far as you know you and me on a day-to-day basis and what we need to do to kind of help conserve water there's i I think just be smart and just be 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 aware of the fact that water is more valuable than we probably recognize you know one of the things casey and i was talking about a little while ago is that, you know, if you live in an apartment, you're not paying the water. You just turn the tap on, right? But just keeping in mind that, like, no, this water could be used by other people, and this water is maybe really valued by other people, not just for them as an individual, but for the economy as a whole and all, all the different things that kind of how we use water and, and why um, and who needs it. So keeping I, that in mind, I guess that's the the best thing. If you know we're in drought, I'd say – be very thoughtful about how you use water. Uh, very well said, and uh, thank you very much. This is uh, Jim Bond, and um, yeah, we thank you very much for your contribution. All right. Thanks, guys. All righty. We'd like to thank you once again, Jim. That was an interview talking a little bit about his role managing all sorts of different water scenarios and how to interact with a very just adverse public. And as you could see, if you really work to build that mutual understanding, can build a lot of positive results. However, that's going to run our time here at Talking Brands Radio. We're going to go ahead and play out one last song, but if you have any questions or comments like our buddy Scott did, we'd like to thank you for your email you shot out the other week. Fortunately, we didn't have time to talk about it. Hopefully, we will next time. But feel free to send us an email at talkingbrands at gmail.com. And this is going to do it for Talking Brands Radio.